Welcome to the Dark Zone, an adventure racing podcast. This is your host, Brian Gaines. Today for episode one, we are joined by Mike Garrison. Mike is the executive director of the United States Adventure Racing Association, or as it is often called, USARA. We've invited Mike onto the podcast so that he can help explain the finer points of adventure racing, explain what makes it different from other endurance sports, and how newcomers can learn more. For those newer racers and for the seasoned veteran, sit back and relax. This is a good one as Mike goes into his experiences and what adventure racing means to him. Thank you for joining us and enjoy the show. Adventure racing is enjoying a bit of a, a renaissance in America, uh, due in large part to the Eco Challenge, which premiered last year on Amazon Prime. Um, a lot of racers, a lot of races are occurring now. Post-COVID-19, post the pandemic, um, the adventure racing world is coming back alive a little bit, and we're beginning to see an influx of racers um, that are coming to us from other sports that may have uh, taken part in other endurance events, triathlon, road racing, bicycle racing, things like that. And and the question for you, Garrison, is, is going into the sport. Very often we're asked as racers, well, what is adventure racing? And people very often confuse it with other endurance sports like Tough Mudders or Spartan racers. So as the executive director, I think that you're probably the resident expert on how can we define what adventure racing is? Yeah, no, that's a good question. Um, and it's a more challenging question, I would say, than average for our sport. Um, and I'll explain that a little bit. So there's there's a formulaic response or, or answer to what is adventure racing, which I can break down what the sport is. And it's typically uh, a co-ed team sport. Uh, it's typically out in the wilderness. It's multi-sport, generally involving three core disciplines, which is foot travel, mountain biking, and paddling. Um, and that foot travel may be just hiking and running. The biking may be technical mountain biking or gravel roads. Paddling could be inflatable pack craft canoe. But that's that's basically like your three main modes of transport or movement a team would use. Um, and, and then it's navigation-based. So unlike going out and doing a trail run, per se, where you are out there in the wilderness, but you've got a marked course. One of the unique aspects of adventure racing is that you get the points that your team has to go to, but then you got to figure out the best way to get there. And in certain races or certain parts of races, you may even have to figure out what order to get the points in a particular section. So it may just be 10 points out in the woods that you and your team have to figure out um, what order you want to get them that you think is optimal for that particular part of the course. So that's kind of the, the basic kind of what is the sport? You know, what, what can you expect when you show up? You're going to get a team together. You're going to show up at a race. Um, you're going to need, you know, the mountain bike. You need whatever paddling equipment may be required, backpack, food, water, some safety equipment, things like that, based on what the race director uh, um, requires. Uh, and then, yeah, you're going to spend anywhere from six hours to six days in some type of semi-wilderness to wilderness environment going from point to point as prescribed by the uh, by the race director with your team. So, Gotcha. And the um, navigation from point to point, the racers are given paper maps to use by the race director? Yeah, so you will get any variety of numbers of maps or types of maps, but yeah, you get a paper map. Um, you may get a map or sets of maps. You may get more maps during 
the course of the race. Um, and then sometimes we'll get those maps and they're pre-marked. And what that means is the, the points you have to go to are already marked on the map, generally with a circle showing the exact spot and then either letter or number so that you know which point is which. Um, and some races require something called UTM plotting. So UTM is an acronym for, I think it's Universal Transverse Mercator, which is unimportant and nobody will ever need to know that again. That will um, actually be in the, the post uh, <laughs> podcast quiz. So thank you for that. There you go. <laughs> You're welcome. I'm a little impressed that I actually remember what that was once I started down that path. Um, but yeah, if you can basically, you can imagine it as a one kilometer grid across the maps of, you know, the area. And then if you just think of that as a one kilometer grid, you've kind of got your, your X or your horizontal axis and your Y with your vertical axis and the numbers that they give you allow you to kind of zero in and plot those points. So that was a required skill 20, 25, 30 years ago in adventure racing, because you couldn't easily print maps. That was the only way to get people to get points on maps. Um, now printing maps is far easier. So some course, uh, race directors will choose to give you the pre-marked maps and some will choose to make you plot the points for, you know, whatever reason relative to that specific race. Gotcha. So the interesting part here is there are, there are certain physical disciplines that are involved in adventure racing, right? You will, you will transport yourself on your own two legs, either running or hiking or trekking. You'll get on a bicycle and you'll either go on gravel roads, technical mountain bike, single track, whatever that is. And then you'll paddle a boat, inflatable kayak, maybe a canoe, things like that. The, the difference we see between traditional endurance sports and adventure racing is that the all of the movement is navigationally based, predicated upon the decisions that the team makes and the direction that they want to travel. So, so if you're a newcomer to adventure racing, and, and this is what we're talking about today, you could be very good at moving yourself around on a marked course, right? We, right. we go and we do yep. a trail run and there's, there's ribbons on the trail. Someone may put down a marker, make a left here, make a right there. The real jump in adventure racing is that you need to do all of those same things, but you also need to choose the route that you're going to take along the way. Yep, absolutely. And it's um, it's in some ways a little bit of an equalizer, you know, because you got to be um, you got to be fit. You don't have to be, um, you know, Olympic level athlete, but you got to have an endurance level that you can get out there for six, eight, 24 hours. But like you said, you also have to figure out where the heck you are and where you're going and, and moving with efficiency and then hopefully moving with speed while trying to work through that navigation can be challenging. And you also hit on another really important point, which is you're doing it as a team. So when you put your team together, you got to be thinking about like, that team dynamic and those goals and things like that. Because if you just show up and you and I are racing, we've never talked about it. We both think we're going to navigate for that race. Uh, that typically doesn't do well. You get like navigating by committee, then you get people, you know, debating with each other. So the navigation adds, adds challenge both just with the navigation itself, but then also with how that affects the team dynamic. So it's, it's one of the most unique aspects of the sport. And I think one of the kind of the most, um, defining characteristics of it definitely the the um that, that interpersonal interplay during the event especially when things fatigue sets in nighttime sets and things like that it's a whole other dynamic and what's what's powerful about adventure racing is that it is not merely a sport in which one's capacity for energy dictates their success the physically strongest person doesn't necessarily win every single adventure race that they enter physical strength is a component but there's a whole other there's a, there's many other components that have to be brought into play to do well. 
Absolutely. I mean, that's how I got hooked on the sport is the first couple of years, I was not a very fit person at all. Um, I would still consider myself in a category that my friend made up called elite non-athlete. So I'm like at the best of non-athletes mm-hmm. is kind of where I put sure. myself, um, but was good at navigation. So you go out there on a course against these chiseled triathletes that are going super fast in the wrong direction. Um, and if you're able to keep your wits together with your team and navigate well, you're showing up at checkpoints at the same time as them. And you kind of have to be good at a bunch of things, but not expert at anything. And for me personally, like that's one of the big things that hooked me on the sport. It's like, Hey, this is something I can do. You got, you know, what do they say at uh, Jack of all trades, but master of none. So yep. having, having a, a, a minimal skill set at a variety of skills yep. goes a long way. Now yep. you mentioned before that the races go from six hours to six days. And, and, and if someone were to sign up for a, a local six hour race, call it six hours, eight hours, 10 hours, mm-hmm. would it be fair to assume for that person's preparation that that would qualify towards the beginner end of the spectrum for adventure racing? Uh, yeah. I mean, there's two elements to beginner and advanced. There's the length of the course. Um, I know people that have shown up for multi-day races as a first race. I would not have had the guts to do that, but some people have done it. Um, but yeah, so you've got the length of the event. You've also got the, the complexity of the event. You know, I've done 24 hour races where the navigation was not super challenging. The terrain wasn't super technical. So I actually would say that, yeah, this 18 to 24 hour race, you're not going to feel, you know, technically overwhelmed by it. You just have to deal with the the length of the event. Um, And then I've done short races that have been very technical, either because of the terrain or the skills required or things like that. So if you're a a pure beginner, you know, and you want to find a race that's not overwhelming, you do kind of want to have a good idea both on the distance, but then then the technical nature of the event, because some race directors will put on a six to eight hour race with uh, ascending on ropes. And that's a skill you got to practice, right? And not everybody's going to have that just uh, just showing up with the harness. So, and and to that point, if, for people who wanted to give adventure racing a try, it's safe to assume that the the communication from the race director prior to the race makes it makes it very clear what the expectations are inside the race. Yeah, absolutely should. Um, that's one of the things that we at USRA are always <clears throat> striving to do is make sure that your race directors are being clear with that communication about the skills that are required, safety related things, length of course, et cetera, et cetera. But if there's ever any doubt, you know, racers should never hesitate to reach out to the race director and even reach out to people that have done the race in years past uh, and just kind of get a feel for it. Um, you know, when you show up for a 10K, you know that it's going to be 10k uh you show up for an 18 hour race sometimes a top team wins the race clears the course in 17 hours and 59 minutes sometimes they win it in 12 hours so an 18 hour race you know you, you can have a number of different um oh i guess durations if you want to call it that but typically if you plan on racing the whole length of time they give you then you're going to be ready to go got it so two-part question for you define what it means to clear the course ah good question so We'll go do a little bit of uh, a little bit of adventure racing history here, real briefly. Traditionally, back in the day, this would be like '80s, '90s. Um, an adventure race was a point-to-point course, and it was all or nothing. So you may be out there, let's say, at a race series called the Raid the North that was up in Canada. There may be twelve checkpoints spread all through the wilderness, and you got three days to get them all. And either you got them all and you finished, or you didn't, and you DNF'd. You had two categories, finisher, DNF, that's it. Um, 
people that really love that kind of challenge, that's a great course design. But as the sport started to grow, race directors recognized they needed to figure out a way to make things a little bit more approachable. And so the concept of optional checkpoints was introduced. So you may have a course where there is 15 mandatory checkpoints, like you have to get all 15 of these, but there may be an additional 10 checkpoints, either on the bike, on foot, or on paddle, uh, that are optional, that you don't have to get to finish the race. So if I say you cleared the course, that means generally you got all the mandatory points and you got all the optional points. And most courses, not all, but most courses, the winning teams will quote unquote, clear the course. So for someone coming over from another sport, they might be thrown off by that, right? Because when you're going to run a marathon, you're going to run 26.2 miles. If you run 24 miles, you didn't finish the marathon, (laughs) right? You you, you stopped in a a, a woefully sad distance to the finish, right? Most people would crawl the final (laughs) two miles. But to, to that point, you could go to a race, get the maps, navigate, do all the mandatories, not do all the optionals and still be considered a full course finisher. Yeah. Um, the, that's one area where the terminology is not always standardized, you know, with full course, sometimes people will call full course mandatory and optionals. Um, sometimes there's different terms there, but the, the, the key I think is that you're, you're, you're an official finisher of the race. You know, if you get all those mandatory checkpoints and that's, that should be stage one or step one, I guess, in your thought process when you show up is, is figure out what kind of race it is. You know, if it's mandatory and optionals and look at those mandatory points and really internalize that and figure out like, okay, is this something we feel like our team can, can, can bite off and, and, and succeed with? Um, I'll just tell you right now, every new team, you will have eyes bigger than your legs and lungs at some point. Um, I've done it more than once and you will end up on a course with an hour to go and realize, oh crap, you know, we're two hours from the finish. There's an hour to go. We probably should have cut something earlier. And if that does happen to you, I would just say, don't worry about it. Everybody does it. Um, but yeah, that's something you should be thinking about. And as you race more, you'll learn what your team speed is generally and get better at making those decisions. Got it. I agree. Uh, yeah. We've all had that feeling where we're out on the course and all of a sudden you look at the map and you realize that you're much further from where you want to be. Yep. And to be a race yep. to finish. And sometimes it goes great. Sometimes you get, you get your money's worth and you finish it exactly the right amount of time. Or you have the shame that my team had recently of being 51 minutes late for the end of a race and <laughs> crawling into the finish with, uh, with our heads hanged low, knowing that we just knocked our placing out. I could probably beat you on that one in that um, I did it so badly years ago that we didn't even crawl to the finish. We came to the finish in the back of a pickup truck while they're doing the awards ceremony. Yeah, that's, that's um, a little rough. That, that, that's about as shameful as you can get, I think. <laughs> so well, let's talk for a second about nutrition. Um, and Because there's a, there's a component here to adventure-based nutrition that kind of blows newcomers' minds. Yeah. Are people allowed yeah. to stop at stores when they're racing? Almost without exception, yes. So you're telling me um, that if I'm a, if I'm a racer and if I'm traveling down the road and I have my maps and I have my compass and I have my bike and I'm passing by a seven 11 or a quickie Mart or a Wawa, whatever you want to call it, I could leave the race course, go inside and purchase a cup of coffee. Yep. The only thing you can't do is have like a prearranged drop of food or supplies from somebody outside the race. So like if you were racing, you couldn't have your, 
buddy agree to meet you somewhere with hot coffee at three in the morning and some chicken soup and Red Bull or whatever, uh, that you can't do. Uh, but if you are fortunate enough to come across a store, uh, like I said, almost without exception, it's it's not only allowed, it, it's kind of in some ways encouraged. And some of the most entertaining times during a race can be at an unexpected little you know convenience store or whatever at the right time of a race and you'll find a dozen really shady straggly looking adventure racers in there buying up all the coffee and and 600 calorie fruit pies and anything else they can get their hands on yeah that, this has happened recently at the uh the the uh the two rivers adventure race many of us yep. came across uh they were closing at seven o'clock and we got there at 10 to 7. We bought all their pizza and all their jalapeno poppers and called it a day, right? So yes, uh, so, so that so that's a nice I, that's a nice segue into into the idea of well, if someone's traveling for that long, if I'm doing a three day race, I can't possibly carry three days worth of food. What is a transition area? Yeah, so short race, long race. At some point, you're going to come into what's called the transition area, and it's generally defined as any spot where you're transitioning from one mode of travel to another. So let's make a simple example. The first leg of your, even if it's a six hour race, if the first leg of your race is uh, like a 5K, you know, trail hike or whatever, and then you get to a predefined area with all of your bikes, well, that's the transition area. And you're going to transition onto your bike to keep moving. Uh, depending on the course and depending on the length, et cetera, um, you'll have access to a variety of gear. So you used an example of like a longer six day race, which are, those are generally referred to as expedition races. Um, I think you said three days actually, but um, yeah, you, it would be incredibly impractical to carry all of that stuff with you. So when you come into that transition area, you may have a bin or two for your team that has spare clothes, spare um, uh, gear, and then your food, supplies and you may have something like a bike box we won't get into that too much but sometimes you got to take your bike apart and put it in a box for transport um but yeah so you will almost always get the information you need at least at the very beginning of the race or right before the race about roughly the distance or the time between seeing your gear so you'll show up for a race this three-day race like you said and you'll have three days worth of food uh what that generally entails is way too much of one kind of food and not enough of another kind of food, most of which will come home with you. And you'll figure, you'll wonder if you ever actually ate anything on the course because you've got 14 bags of Cheetos and 16 things of Oreos, but um, you'll have your three days of food. And then you get the information before the race, like, okay, the first leg is estimated at six to eight, 10 hours. The second leg is estimated at, you know, 10 to 14 hours. Then you got to start breaking it up in, in whatever method you use so that you have um, the right amount of food for the, for the leg of the course that you're on. So it's something that uh, talking to newer racers, there's, there's a couple things I think that can be really potentially overwhelming that I want to assure them not to worry too much about that. One is the gear because just, one of the reasons we all love the sport is, is it gives you the excuse to buy all the cool gear. You got bike stuff, you got climbing stuff, you got running stuff, you got paddling stuff, but that can also be super intimidating if you're not familiar with it, man, ask any adventure racer if you dare, and they will talk your ear off about gear. They will tell you everything you need to know and put your mind at ease. You don't need the super expensive stuff to show up to do a race. You know, you can get up to your first race or your first five races um, without you know, selling everything in the kitchen sink to do so. Um, and the, um, 
that's where I was going with that. There's the the gear part. Oh, then then obviously the the food part. You know, what do I eat over over three days? And those things that can be intimidating as well. Um, but I I would encourage people not to feel too intimidated and ask ask a lot of questions because as you know we all love talking about it we, we, we yeah exactly and to that point we <laughs> we enjoy adventure racing we enjoy talking about it and and being a small community we tend to there's a lot of connection between people and what i found overwhelmingly is that whenever anybody reaches out and has interest in an adventure race the community is very welcoming and very open um i think the, the community takes a lot of pride in the fact that the, the the point of entry into doing a race is not really that high um, I've had the opportunity to race across multiple endurance sports from bicycle racing, triathlon, road marathoning. And what I've always found is that adventure racing as a community compared to those other sports is overwhelmingly invested in the success of everybody else. Um, that the, there, while there's certainly adventure races are competitive and it's a competitive sport, right? It's not, it's not a nice walk in the woods. It's a, it's a challenging right. race right. for the most part. Um, I would say on average, I'd even say overwhelmingly that during the course of a race, if you come across another team and if, and if, a, if a newer team were to need assistance in some sport, what kind of reception would they get from the typical adventure racing team on a course when they would need some help? Uh, probably shocking, shockingly borderline, like disturbingly positive response. <laughs> you know, you will see teams um, sometimes take hours out of their race to help somebody else. Um, you'll always hear people asking if they're okay, if they need anything when they're crossing, like if you see somebody on the side of the road, you know, flat tire, the bike's broken down. Um, race I did just you know, a week and a half ago, somebody needed a, uh, a chain link, you know, for their chain and probably like three teams stopped until somebody had a quick link and then, you know, grabbed it out of their saddlebag and gave it to them. So um, it's, yeah, it's part of the identity of the sport that that friendliness that openness openness and that supportiveness um we're a small but growing sport and i think that contributes to it but you got to remember we're a team sport too so successful teams are good at supporting their teams and if you're good at supporting your teammates that's just who you are and then that translates to helping helping other teams so are there any questions about the, 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 the race itself? We talked about navigation. We talked about food. We talked about gear. We talked about the culture of, of the race itself for the, for the new listener here, for the person considering an adventure race, is there something that I may have left out that they would need to know to learn more about the sport? Or do you think we covered it pretty well? What would you guess be? Yeah. I mean, I think we covered it pretty well. There's going to be, there's a whole host of specific questions like, um, you know, what kind of bike, what kind of bike tires, what kind of pedals and all that. And those are the perfect questions to go ask. There's um, the adventure racing discussion group on Facebook is a great place to go. And again, be aware, you'll get a ton of answers and they'll probably be all over the place. So you'll get a good selection of possibilities. You'll still have to figure out like what works best for you. The one area I would really encourage people to spend some time doing their homework is on that navigation. Um, you know, there were some guys that showed up for the uh, no sleep race week and a half ago that didn't know what a UTM coordinate was, didn't know how to plot a map and didn't know anything about navigation. And the race director sat with them for a half hour, hour before the race, got them schooled up and they did a damn fine job actually, you know, coming out of the gates with no experience. But um, if you're going to spend a little bit extra time, I would spend some time, find some videos. If you can get to a local orienteering meet, orienteering is a sport that is, it's just land navigation. Uh, on highly detailed maps, 
uh, orienteering clubs are, are usually extremely welcoming and they got clinics and stuff like that. I would highly recommend if you can do that before your first adventure race, that'll remove um, kind of one of the bigger stress points, I would say, or unknown points for, for people. So yeah, and on that, on that note, there's um, very often people are funny in the respect that um, more often than not, whenever somebody tries something new, they're worried about having so little capacity at it that they would do poorly or they would embarrass themselves. Yeah. And I think adventure racing is special in the idea that people who, who, who race it, who enjoy it and race well and, and, and take a lot out of the experience, they're comfortable with recognizing that in the beginning that they're not going to be too good at it and they're not really being judged. Like it's okay to get lost when you're racing. It's okay to kind of mess up your food a little bit. It's okay to come in towards the back part of the field that every single adventure racer has been on a pretty steep learning curve because the required skills to do this are honed over time. They don't just come naturally to somebody. So do you have any advice for the, for the new racer who would be concerned about how they would be perceived by the other mm -hmm. racers if they show up and they're not really very good at it? Mm, yeah. Um, I like, we've kind of been discussing it's, it's a very non judgmental sport. Um, and whether you're showing up with an undersized pack or an oversized pack or, you know, something that somebody who's more experienced could look at and go, Ooh, that's probably a mistake. They're also thinking, I remember when I did that. Right. So we, we've all done it. You know, unless you got really lucky and you came in with a super experienced team and they coached you up that learning curve super fast. Um, we've all gone through that process and it's, it's not an environment where somebody's going to come over and condescendingly say, well, you know, you really shouldn't do that. This is the right way to do it. Uh, but if you have any questions, then by all means ask, you know, and it, it, perfect examples, like you may show up a race and see, be standing next to a team that has a, these teeny tiny packs and you may think, oh my gosh, I screwed this up. Well, no, you're, you're standing next to one of the best teams in the country that has learned how to race ultralight. They're ready to freeze their butts off at night and they know exactly what they're doing and they've, they've dialed it in. That is by no means something that you should try doing yourself. So don't just like compare yourself to everybody else. If you're wondering like, wow, how are you doing it with the tiny pack? Ask them, right? Like get that engagement. And unless you're like standing on the start line, we're ready to go where people might be a little distracted. Uh, you know, people will always talk to you and kind of break down their approach. And I can't stress it enough, like newer racers shouldn't think that if they talk to one experienced team that, okay, that's the way I need to do it. There is going to be trial and there is going to be a lot of error and that's totally fine. That's kind of how it works. So the old expression, comparison is the thief of joy, right? Don't yeah. look around and say, I'm, <laughs> yeah. I'm not like these people. I don't fit in here. Say, yep. and, and I think it's a fun thing about adventure racing too. And you don't see this in a whole lot of other sports is when you go to a race that that could be rather competitive, there's a really good shot that you are, to your point, lining up alongside perhaps national champions. And yep. that, and that in, in many ways, adventure racing is, is a very democratic sport. It's a great equalizer because everybody on that course is given the same set of expectations, instructions, rules, and maps. And it's everybody's got a shot at, at, at winning it, right? And yep. that's nice that we don't separate people out like that. Like we don't start Adventure racers, and I've never seen this, have they, they don't have like staggered start times for better teams. It's like the gun goes off and off we go. Yep. No, the closest I've seen to that, which isn't even what you're talking about, is occasionally if logistically a race has to start people in a staggered way, they may do like a prologue the night before. Mm -hmm. 
you know, and I did done a race where like is a little orienteering course. So a little land navigation course with map and compass and, and the, based on your finishing sequence, you know, that's how they started the paddle the next morning. But it's, it's, that's, that was just a, an element of the logistics of that specific course. But yeah, you're, you're lining up at next to national champions. And if you race internationally, you may probably be lining up next to world champions. Yeah. I went um, to Scotland last year and I got clobbered by a team from Europe. They were fantastic and they were done yeah. days before us and they were great. And they were, and to your point, they were friendly and they were gracious and they were helpful. And we were the only American team there and they could not have been any more friendly to us, which yeah. keeps us coming back. Right. Because human beings will naturally, they'll, they'll resist returning to places where they're not treated well. Or at least they're supposed to, and and we don't. And adventure racing always welcomes people back in. We're going to come to to your race experience in a second, but I, in your role as the executive director of the United States Adventure Racing Association, you have your finger on the overall pulse of the national picture. Uh, and you mm -hmm. mentioned before that it was a growing sport. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah. So um, the sport's been around in the U.S. for about twenty years. Um, the sport itself started. A little bit upside down or backwards from what you may assume is the case from the outside meaning it started with these really big events raid galois was one eco challenge was one these were seven eight nine ten eleven twelve day true expeditions in the like true wilderness and that was the vision of these race directors is to create these immense epic adventures that they would challenge these teams with um, as this, that picked up popularity, people realized pretty quickly, like, eh, we're gonna have to distill this down, you know, a little bit. And so late nineties, you saw a series like high tech series of races was one balance bar, of uh, shorter, you know, shorter races. And it saw a real surge when eco challenge was still on TV. Um, there was X games, things like that, you know, extreme sports was a big thing in the late nineties. And that's where adventure racing got its first big surge of entry into the sport. And if you look at everybody that's a sport now, they're probably like one degree of separation from somebody that got hooked by watching one of those races on TV back in the day, if it's not actually them. Uh, most of those races went off the air and went off TV. Uh, the sport was pretty, you know, healthy and, and maintained popularity during this past 20 years, but it hasn't seen another bump in popularity because it just doesn't typically make it into the public eye. Um, I've only half jokingly said that one of my goals with USARA is to make adventure racing a widely understood and recognized household term because I've raced for 20 years and it wasn't until my mom watched Eco Challenge last September, which I was fortunate enough to race, that she finally figured out what the sport was and stopped calling it, quote unquote, one of your bike races. Um, so the sport, fortunately, through the what is effectively like free national, international marketing by Eco Challenge hitting the air again on Amazon Prime, has seen a big surge in interest. It was a real unfortunate uh, sequence or unfortunate timing that that thing aired right in the middle of a global pandemic. So we were getting barraged with people signing up for the USARA mailing list saying, how do I get into the sport? This looks awesome. And the demand went through the roof and we were stuck with no supply, you know, cause there was almost no racing taking place during the pandemic for obvious reasons. Um, but as races started to take place, um, I think the first race I did 
was last fall in central Indiana and like a third of the field on the four hour course were there because they had watched eco challenge and it was sold out and a 12 hour course was sold out too. And I've talked to race directors um, that are selling out that have never sold out before. I've talked to race directors that have sold out like a 24 hour course and an eight hour course. And they added another eight hour course and then they sold that out too. So the interest is absolutely there. It survived through the pandemic and, and people are getting out there and, and giving the sport, giving the sport a shot. And so, um, you know, we're, we're trying to focus on that. And one of our big areas of attention early on uh, with the transition of USARA is trying to make the website a place where people who are interested don't know what to do. Where do I go next? They can go to the website. They can see some information and content about the sport in general and then where events are and then hopefully get connected with a race director and get out there and do their first race. So, um, it's a long answer to say that, yeah, mostly because of Eco Challenge being on the air, it's seen a huge bump in popularity. And now hopefully we're going to kind of um, latch onto that and, and continue to grow it and not just take that one bump, but turn that into a, to a steady, steady incline. So on the Eco Challenge question, I think you said earlier that you raced Eco Challenge. Yep. Can you talk a bit about your experience there? Because I know that our listeners, because our listeners have migrated over from there to here. So they'd love to hear a bit about your experience. Yeah. So I was one of those people that I, I got hooked on the sport back in late nineties is when I first saw it on TV. And I thought, Oh, someday it would be nice to do that. And 2001 or 2002 is the first time I realized that there was six hour races and that's what got me hooked in the sport. And so when word came out that eco challenge was coming back, um, when it first came out, it wasn't going to work for me. Um, not, nobody, me and my teammates, we kind of talked about it and, um, you know, work schedules and life stuff were like, ah, I don't think this is going to work. So we didn't apply. And then a few months later, Cliff and Kate White from Strong Machine reached out to me and they're like, yeah, we got a spot if you're interested. And my circumstances had changed a little bit. And so I um, had some conversations with some folks at work and ended up being able to swing it and was able to join them. And a good friend of mine, John McInnes, joined uh, as our crew person. Uh, and it was a, it was it was a really awesome experience. Uh, it was crazy after racing for almost 20 years, being at an event with that type of production quality and, and, and production investment. Helicopters, and cameramen. I, I never heard seen anybody it. who races said it was incredible. Oh yeah. You're, you're, you're totally like, especially as a more experienced racer, you're trying to play it cool. Like you're not fanboying over all the, the personalities that you watched on TV 15, 20 years ago. Um, they're now you're racing in a race with them. Um, you know, and then the helicopters and all that stuff, like you said, after a while you did get used to it, but it was pretty cool every morning, you know, racing. And then around 6 AM or so you'd hear the helicopters start up and then somebody in the team would start, uh, whistling rise of the Valkyries and everybody <laughs> laughed and then, you know, you keep the flight of the Valkyries, uh, and keep racing. Um, but yeah, no, it was an awesome experience. Strong machine was a great team to race with. It was Cliff and Kate white and Cliff's dad, Starker. Um, and you know, we went into the race knowing it was going to be a race to try and finish type situation uh starker was 65 years old when we did the race Amazing. and you know he trained his ass off for that race and that man is <laughs> he is one of the most stubborn individuals on the face of the planet and um he can be a difficult guy to to race with and i hope he hears this because he knows this is this is true but that stubbornness is also it made him 
as strong as he was. And I was super impressed. And and we were we were moving along. We were taking lots of time in transition, um, getting good sleep, taking care of our bodies. And it was on day seven, I think, we were heading to that rope ascent on the waterfall. And we were in the river valley below it. And if you've watched the show, you saw the the fancy helicopter rescue with the lobster pot. That was Starker uh, getting airlifted out of the river. And so that was unfortunately um, the end of our race. And interestingly enough, having no idea that our futures would involve taking over USARA, Cliff and I were talking about the future of the sport in the US and USARA at the very moment that Starker took his spill in the river and, and broke his leg um, and had to get airlifted out. So, um, but, you know, even, even with that finish not being what we had hoped for, you know, we had really started to see like, wow, you know, we've got time. We may be able to finish this thing. Um, it was still one of the, most impactful racing experiences in my life. And uh, yeah, it was awesome. And, and that's, it, that's a hard, to, I, I did an interview um, not too long ago with a, a, an event racer and she was speaking about her experience out in Expedition Oregon. And it was the, the longest that she had ever raced. And she, in the interview that we had, we spoke, she talked about how there was almost like this, um, I'm gonna use the word spiritual. There was almost like this, this moment during the race where she was, she was tired. She was physically at the end of her wits. She was mentally exhausted and yet she was exhilarated. She felt yep. as if she had done something that she had never done before. And she took a lot of pride in it. And it, it really meant something special to her. And yep. you kind of touched on that a little bit in the race itself with Starker and Cliff and Kate yep. you being there. Can you talk a bit about the, the physical component is that it's the, Physical component is very often a separator in adventure racing, but it's not the only thing you have to be able to do. There has to be an attitude that the racer brings to the experience. Yep. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So in you saying that and describing that right there, the first thing that came to my mind was uh, 2012 sunrise day three untamed New England on a mountaintop. So I think somewhere in Maine, could have been Vermont. I can't remember. That was my first kind of spiritual moment. And you're chafed, you know, you've got rashes, you're sore, you're bruised. Um, at that point, I had a really wicked looking black eye. Um, but the exhilaration I felt as that sun came up when we were walking along this, this ridgeline of me and my teammate was completely unexpected. Like I had no idea I was going to experience anything like that in the race. And if you're able to go into the race, especially long races, but it's a good practice for any race with the expectation that you're going to be challenged, you're going to be pushed and that you can do way, way more than you think you will be rewarded with those types of experiences. Um, you can have that in a 24 hour race. Um, you definitely will get that on an expedition race. And I think a big part of it comes from kind of the essence of what adventure racing is in that you have a team that you have to be working with. You have terrain that you have to be contending with. You don't have time in your head for quote unquote real life BS. Like by 10 hours into a 24 hour race or a day into a multi-day race, like that is your existence and that's it. And I don't think we have a lot of things that we do in life nowadays that, that provide that. And so you get to, if you're willing to deal with the discomfort, the pain, the fatigue and being tired and sore and all that, um, that's one of the big rewards that you get and you get to experience it with a team. So if you have a good team of people that um, you've really bonded with, 
and work well with, and you get to that point in the race. Um, ah, yeah, I don't want to say that adventure racing is like the only sport you can experience that, but it's got to be one of the very few sports where almost everybody can experience that at some point during a race. And you just got to be willing to tell yourself you can keep going. And it's really hard to do. But once you kind of master that, then yeah, that's that's your reward. Yeah, that was an excellent excellent summary of that experience. We've all been there. Uh, for me, it was daybreak coming up in Scotland, climbing all night through this mountain, looking mm -hmm. over my shoulder, the sun coming up, and counting. You know, in succession, nine. I could see nine peaks stacked up behind each other in the in the in, the, in the northern Scotland, yep. and just you know, a, a view that was earned. Um, and I agree with you a thousand percent that the um, people are always, always, always stronger than they think that they are. And I think oh, it, yeah. I think adventure racing is an incredible avenue for people to learn that about themselves. And it's, it's, there's something, you know, there is something kind of, I guess, primal about being out in the wilderness when you're doing the event, which is part of it. But a big part of it is that team too, because you have both that sense of obligation to your team to not let them down, which keeps you going. And then you also have the support of your teammates when you're really feeling down, that keeps you going. And so a good team of three or four will be able to overcome a whole bunch of crap that may have made any one person by themselves stop. And that's another thing that I think is really unique about the sport is, um, you know, some people may think that it's like, a team is as fast as its slowest teammate. And that's, that's not the case at all. You know, it's a team is as fast as that team is able to figure out how to move together as a team. Uh, so, so yeah, it's, 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 um, it's definitely unique in that way. And it's something that I really wish if we could figure out how to like bottle that into a TikTok video <laughs> or like a poster, you know, it's so you got to sit down with someone for five or 10 minutes to have a shot at kind of communicating that um, with any kind of confidence. Right. Um, you know, if we could figure out how to compress that and bottle that, and then I think that's going to be something that's going to get people. Cause what, what got people recently interested in the sport? they got to watch the human stories of people over whatever it was, eight, nine, 10 episodes of Eco Challenge, and they got it, right? Um, they're like, oh, now I'm seeing the highs and the lows and the teamwork and where the teamwork maybe doesn't work so well and like all these different things. And then, you know, they're hooked. That was like whatever, 10 or 11 hours of content you watched to get there. Um, I love to be able to have a 30 second conversation with someone and hook that part of their brain so that they're at least interested in hearing more. And, and to that point, and I, I do think USARA does deserve to, to do some promotion here for that. A, a common goal of the of USARA, I would assume, is trying to get the sport into as many people's lives as possible. Yeah, um, like I said, um, would be fantastic if we could make the term adventure racing uh, commonly understood uh, and recognized household term. I've also said that my goal is that um, you know we're going to get everybody out there who's an adventure racer and doesn't know it into the sport. Um, and that everybody, racers and race directors, have good experiences with the sport. So I'm totally fine if you show up for a six-hour race and you finish that race and you're like, oh, my God, that was terrible. I was miserable. I have blisters. I never want to do it again. That's fine. Was it a good experience? Other than the suffering, yeah. You know, food was good. I knew what I was getting into, but whatever. Like, you can have a good experience and decide it's not for you. That's totally fine. I want you to have the best experience possible, and then if you decide the sport's for you, 
then we are here to take you to that next step. And if you decide it's not for you, that's fine too. I hope you still tell your friends and your family and everybody what you did. And maybe then somebody else hears, oh, well, Bob didn't like that, but that sounds pretty badass. I think I'm going to give it a shot. So yeah, that's kind of what we're, what we're looking at. You know, first and foremost, USARA needs to be a steward of the sport. Um, but a big part of that is making sure that the people are aware of it, obviously, and that they have good experiences when they get into it. A couple of questions as we come to the end of our time together here. Um, what is your favorite race food? Oh, that changes. Um, I got to credit my recent teammate at Two Rivers with, with the one that's probably at the top of my list, which Karen made uh, turkey bacon potato cakes. Um, that was pretty awesome. Just randomly pulled out these foil wrappers with, uh, real food. And I was still kind of in expedition mode from having come back from Oregon a couple of weeks prior. Um, one that's been a staple for me for a number of years is Cheetos. Uh, despite the fact that you get the orange stuff everywhere. I don't know why, just they work, they survive in a pack really well. They make you happy. Um, yeah. And, uh, dark chocolate peanut M&Ms are another consistent one. Um, they can survive hot weather, cold weather. Um, and they just kind of have that right flavor profile for me. And on that note, real quick, just getting to the beginner racer thing. Um, the number one rule with new food is whatever you can eat. Yes. It does not need to be high tech engineered, does not need to be organic. What start with whatever you can get in your stomach. Yes. And you eat as much as you can without puking it up, you know, and, and just whatever sounds good. And then over time you'll learn what works, what doesn't work, what works in hot weather, what works, you know, on the bike versus on foot, but just start with whatever you can stick in your mouth and swallow. And, and, you know, that's, that's kind of the, the, the starting point I tried with all the engineered, like athletic food, uh, the first year or two. And I wondered why I was suffering so bad until somebody gave me like a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and some gummy bears or something else yep. <laughs> ate that. And I was like, Oh my God, I feel so much better now. So to each their own, figure out what works for you. Very often. I heard that real food is the way to go. That the prepackaged stuff is good in a pinch, but if you have to unwrap it out of a plastic wrapper, it's usually not, usually not going to stick with you for that long. It depends. You know, you're right. Like I definitely, you definitely longer the race, you want to get some real food in there. Um, and then some prepackaged stuff works for people. You know, I know people that use almost pure candy. I could never do that. I need that balance of salty and sweet. But uh, especially early on, don't put all your eggs in one basket. Uh, I raced the guy that tried to do the whole race on cliff blocks, I think. 24-hour, it was nationals, 30-hour race. Uh, yeah, he was borrowing food before that race was yeah, over. Yeah, probably didn't involve him. Probably still <laughs> so, hurting about it years later. Yeah, at least have some variety. And I guarantee you'll have one thing you eat all of and another thing that you don't want to touch for a week after the race. But that's just the way it goes. Now, this next question is kind of tough because it's asking like someone to pick their favorite child. But if you could yeah. go back to a race, what race would you go back to and do it again? Ooh. Okay, I got to roll back through... Oh man. So is it re-experiencing the exact same race experience that I had? No, it's it a race. Go- it was a race that was just, it was so enjoyable and so much fun. You'd love to get back in the start line of that race. So, okay. I've had two races. Um, I'm, I'm going to cheat the answer. Like everybody always does when they don't want to pick their favorite kid. Um, Eco challenge was such a potentially once in a lifetime experience. It's hard not to put that on the list 
somewhere. Um, I've had two races in the last three years, 2018 Untamed New England and the 2021 Expedition Oregon, where I showed up with a team I'd never raced with before. And those two races had some of the absolute best racing experience I've ever had. Just the team clicked. The dynamic was great. Uh, we laughed, you know, sometimes cases laughed till we cried. Um, Expedition Oregon competitively didn't go as well as we hoped. We all agreed that it was a fantastic experience. Uh, 2018 Untamed, we had a couple guys that were ex expedition rookies, but did a fantastic job. Um, and just, you walked, I, in my case with both those races, walked off that course on a high just having loved the experience from, from start to finish, because once you get off the course and take that shower or even just have that first beer, um, it's amazing how quickly you forget the parts of the race where you're pretty sure you're just going to retire because it hurts so bad. <laughs> yeah, every, every, every big race I've done, there's been a point in the race where I said to myself, I'm done with this. I'm never doing it again. I'm selling all of my gear. And then yep. to your point, the, the race finishes, you, you're standing at the start line, you at the finish line, you trade the stories, you, you, you laugh along, you look at the maps together, and within one or two days later, you're looking at the calendar for the next race. Yep, yep. And the very for last sure. thing I'll ask you, Garrison, because you've been a, yeah. an excellent guest today, and thank you. We've talked a lot about the new racer, and I don't want to retread it too much, but what's the one piece of advice that you want the new racer to take away from this interview? Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to ask questions. Uh, don't be afraid to do something you haven't done before. Uh, don't be afraid to go way out of your comfort zone. Um, that's kind of what the sport, a big part of the sport is about. You have to be willing to, you know, push yourself either physically, comfort zone wise, emotionally, mentally, whatever. Um, just don't be afraid and, and ask people questions, whether it's on social media, emailing people directly, um, like you, we've already talked about adventure racers will absolutely try and support you in every way they can. So, um, don't be afraid. We got you and, um, we will absolutely kind of help you get into the sport and, uh, and have a good time at it too. Wonderful. No finer way to close that interview. Garrison, thank okay. you very much for all you've done today. Best of luck at USARA. We'll see you on the course. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Sounds good, man. Thank you to Mike for his time, thoughts, and wisdom, and thank you for listening. The Dark Zone and Adventure Racing Podcast is hosted by Brian Gatins and is available on all your regular podcast channels. We hope that you join us next time, and until then, check your maps and check on your teammates. <music>